two Sundays a year that we devote um, to promoting our groups and giving people an opportunity to sign up. But for us, small groups are not the end. They're the means to an end. And the end at this church, we call them life-giving relationships. We're looking for each person in this room to have people. You need three or four or five people who know you and who you know. Uh, transparency, that's people being able to see into your life. Vulnerability, that's people being able to speak into your life. You need those type of relationships. You've all been to the doctor before. You know what this is like. If you go in and you, you tell them, hey, this is where I'm hurting, this is what's going on, that's transparency. That's saying, this is what's happening with me. And vulnerability is when he writes the prescription, he tells you, this is what you need to do. You need both of those. If you go to the doctor and all you do is tell him your symptoms and you walk out the door before he writes a prescription, all you've done is gripe. He hadn't helped you at all. And if you go in and say, doctor, I'm sick, can you give me something? And he just writes a prescription without knowing what's going on in your life, he's just throwing darts at a dartboard. Maybe he gets it right. Maybe he doesn't. We need both of those things. One other little side before I jump into this. For some of us, if I were to ask you, tell me your, give me your top three. Who are your three closest friends? You're going to tell me somebody from high school or someone from college, which is wonderful. That's fine. At those times, we really do seem to bond with people, particularly in those college times. If you maybe went away to school and you lived with somebody for a year or two years, you, you really do develop this kind of deep, lifelong connection, which is wonderful. The issue is when they live 600 miles away, and the only way you keep in touch with them is through your annual Christmas letter or when they come into town every couple of years. Those long-term relationships are wonderful, but that's not what I'm talking about this morning. We need proximity, people who are living life with us. There's got to be some level of overlap for us for, to have these type of relationships that I'm going to be talking about. Those, those lifelong friends are wonderful, and you want to cherish those relationships and hold on to them, but I don't want you to confuse the fact that you've got that type of a thing going on with what I'm talking about here today, which is who is living life with you right now? Who's in your life on Tuesday? And who's in your life next Thursday? Those are the kind of questions that I want you to be asking yourself now. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book a few years ago. It's called Outliers. And it opens with this interesting story of a town in Pennsylvania called Rosito. That's how I'm going to say it. It's R-O-S-E-T-O. -E I don't know exactly how you say it. And this town was, it was a nothing town in the hills, in the hills of Pennsylvania. Um, it was founded in the 1880s by immigrants from Rosito, Italy. They just kept the name. When they came over in this town, was ex inhabited almost exclusively by people from this town in Italy. And they basically just carted over their whole life. They named the streets in the town the same as the streets in their town in Italy. The church had the same name. They continued to speak Italian. They were co totally cut off from the rest of American culture. And in the mid-1950s, a guy named Stuart Wolf, he's a doctor, uh, went to give a lecture at a local medical society. And afterward, the local doctor who serviced several of the, the towns in that area invited him to, the, to, to have a drink, and they got together. And the, this doctor said this to Stuart Wolf, which really grabbed his attention. He said, you know, I've been practicing for 17 years. I get patients from all over, and I rarely find anyone from Rosito under the age of 65 with heart disease. And for Wolf, who's a medical doctor, this shocked him. The 1950s, uh, heart, heart disease was the number one killer of men under the age of 65 it was an epidemic. We didn't have all the cholesterol drugs that we have now. And it was for, for there to be a whole town where people weren't, did not have heart disease, this doctor saying, well, I wonder if there's something I can bottle here and get to the rest of the country. And so he had a friend 
who was a sociologist, and he pulled his friend who was a sociologist in, and he, this guy lived in Oklahoma, he had some students, so they all came back to Rosita, and they started doing some studies, they went through death records, they interviewed everyone in the town who was over age 21, and this is what they found out. Virtually no one under, under uh, 55 had died of a heart attack or showed any signs of heart disease. For men over 65, the death rate from heart disease was roughly half that of the United States as a whole. The death rate from all causes, in fact, was a third lower than expected. There was no suicide, no alcoholism, no drug addiction, and very little crime. They didn't have anyone on welfare. Then we looked at peptic ulcers. They didn't have any of those either. These people were dying of old age, and that's it. So the more they looked, the more intrigued they got. What is going on in this town? And again, is, there, is this any way, is this transferable to the rest of our society? So being the kind of empirical guys they are, they start going through the list. Well, let's look at diet. Maybe the fact that all these guys are Italian immigrants, maybe they're still eating like they did in Italy, and it's just a healthier diet. And so they analyzed their diet, and they found out that they had not kept their Italian eating habits. They ate like we do. They cooked with lard and ate dessert all the time. And they analyzed their, their uh, diet and found out that 41% of their calories came from fat, which I understand is very bad. 41% came from fat. And they thought, well, maybe these, they work hard. These guys worked in a quarry, and they thought, well, maybe they're just working so hard. It's exercise. And so they looked, and just about everyone in the town was a heavy smoker, and most of them were overweight. So they X on diet, X on exercise. And they said, well, let's look at heredity. Maybe these guys are just something in their genes that makes them resistant to heart disease. So people from this town in Italy had immigrated elsewhere in the United States, and so they tracked down their relatives from this one town, Rosito, Pennsylvania, who lived elsewhere in the United States and found out they were dying at just the same rate as everyone else in the U.S. So it wasn't genes. And they said, well, maybe it's this particular area in Pennsylvania. Maybe there's kind of something in the water, quote, unquote. And so they looked at the two towns that were near, Bangor and Nazareth. Their death rates were, again, typical with the national average. So it's not diet, it's not exercise, it's not heredity, it's not location. And these guys are going, what in the world is going on in this town? And so they were walking around, the medical doctor and the sociologist, and this, these were their observations. Let me just read you this paragraph. We looked at how they visited one another, stopping to chat in Italian on the street or cooking for one another in their backyards. They learned about the extended family uh, clans that underlay the town's stru social structure. We saw how many homes had three generations living under one roof and how much respect grandparents commanded. We went to Mass at Our Lady of Mount Carmel and saw the unifying and calming effect of the church. We counted 22 separate civic organizations in a town of just under 2,000 people. We picked up on the particular egalitarian ethos of the community, which discouraged the wealthy from flaunting their success and helped the unsuccessful obscure their failures. In transplanting the peasant culture of southern Italy to the hills of eastern Pennsylvania, these people had created a powerful, protective social structure capable of insulating them from the pressures of the modern world. These folks were healthy because of where they were from, because of the world that they had created for themselves in their tiny little town in the hills. The cover story in Christianity Today this month was on, it was called Chasing Methuselah. It's this push, particularly in our country, to live as long as we can. And the stat that they gave that stuck out to me was 100 million Americans, right now 100 million Americans are engaged in either some type of practice or consuming some type of product that's designed to say, I want to live longer. That's it. They're taking vitamins. They're taking minerals that are all for longevity, uh, human growth hormone, testosterone, estrogen. They're uh, plastic surgery. There's a diet called the 120-year diet. Ironically, it was written by a guy who died at 80, so I don't know how his marketing campaign is going since then, but it's out there. And so you've got these, this thing 
How do I live longer? How do I live longer? How do I li-? You see that all the time when we're looking at these stem cells and all of these different things that we can do to prolong life. And I wonder, is it just a matter of living in community? These guys in Pennsylvania ate terribly, and they were fat, and they smoked, and their genes weren't any different than ours, and they were resistant to all of these health issues. A hard science medical doctor and a sociologist say because they chose to live in community. I'm not saying that that's going to make us all live to 120, but there's something to be said for deep, lasting, life-giving relationships. And it's not just something that I'm saying as a pastor. Even science confirms life is better lived if you're living it with other people. There's a lady, I think her name is Gretchen Rubin. She wrote a book called The Happiness Project. It sprang out of a blog that she was writing. And in her research, people are 60% happier, those with friends, than those without. Not just surface friends, but deep connections. Overall, they're 60% happier with their quality of life. This is Genesis 1. We'll get back to Ecclesiastes in a second. You can keep your finger there. You might not find it again. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. We were created in the image of a relational God. God exists in eternal communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were created in his image, and it's a pretty easy connection then. If he's relational and we were created in his image, we're created to be relational as well. If you've ever um, gotten a product, and you, you read the instruction manual, how is this thing supposed to work? Genesis 1 and 2 is how we're supposed to work. Things got messed up in Genesis 3, but if you want to know what your life is supposed to look like, what was God's original intent, and it's his continuing intent. He didn't change the plan just because sin entered the world. He's been working to undo the effects of sin since Genesis 3. If you want to know what is my life supposed to look like, what, how am I supposed to function, read Genesis 1 and 2. When you get to Genesis 2.18, you'll, you'll, you'll see this sentence that you've all heard. It's not good for man to be alone. At this point, Adam, everything God has created in the first six, six days, he says is good. Earth's good, sun's good, stars are good, moon's good. Land is good, water's good, fish, birds, animals, plants, everything is good. Adam is good. So in the midst of all this goodness, to read this sentence that says it's not good, it kind of makes you sit up. How can something not be good when it's in an environment of goodness? This is, hear this. God and Adam have the, uh, I would say, the best relationship a man and a human have ever had. According to the Bible, it sounds like God walks with Adam in the garden in the middle of the day. I don't know what that looks like. That's not my experience. This unhindered, unmediated relationship that Adam has with God. There's no sin. There's no confusion. There's no doubt. There's no distance. Adam's got a job. This Here's your responsibility. He wants you to rule over all this stuff and take care of this. He's living in perfection. There's not even weeds in the garden yet. He didn't have to weed at this point, everything is perfect. And God says it's not good for him to be by himself. I want you to think about that. If you're a Jesus and me guy, that's all I need. It's me and him, and we're like this. And God is saying, Adam has me. 
and it's still not good for him to be by himself. I want you to think about what that says for the value of relationships. For God to say, it's not enough for Adam to just have a relationship with me. He's still alone. This is not a single married issue. It's a community isolation issue. You can be single and living in full community, and you can be married and be as isolated as anyone. It's a choice. Am I going to choose to be transparent and vulnerable with some group of people, people who will know me and who I can know? Back to Ecclesiastes 4. Real quick, you've heard these also. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. What does that mean, they have a good return for their work? If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Friends help. You know that. The question is not, are you going to fall down? The question is, when you fall down, is there going to be anybody there to pick you up? Friends, this whole idea of warmth. If you're cutting someone out of your life, what do we say? We're giving them the cold shoulder or we're leaving somebody out in the cold. This picture of warmth. This was written pre-furnace times. If you wanted to get warm, it was around a fire or with a person. You get hypothermia, what do they say? Jump in a sleeping bag with somebody. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to freeze. But if you want to live, you get in a sleeping bag with somebody. That shared body heat. We can't. We don't keep our, we, we need one another to keep warm. You know that. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And I think it's 1 Peter 5, 8, the, the devil is um, described as a lion on the prowl, looking for someone to devour. Y'all seen the nature shows? Who do the lions go after? Stragglers. The ones who are alone. If you isolate yourself, you're an easy target. And this, I think, is more likely for most of us. We don't isolate all of ourselves. We just isolate a part. Some of you are raised. You don't talk about money because that's not proper. You're $10,000 in debt and nobody knows because it's not proper. Well, when is it going to be proper for you to ask for help? When the bank comes and takes your house? What's it going to take? For some of you, you don't talk about your marriage. You have this picture in your mind. where You think you're honoring your spouse because you're not talking about where you're struggling. And then by the time you come and see me, it's done. That's not honoring, divorce doesn't honor your spouse. You don't have to trash them to say, we're struggling here. It's probably your fault anyway. So tell me what, that's how it works. It's always our fault. It's always her fault too. It's both of us. That's how it works in a marriage. You know that. You don't want to let anybody know that your kids are killing you because then they're going to think you're a bad mom until we see them on the police blotter in the paper. Reach out. You don't talk about business because business is business. It's not. We have these, these sections of our life that we keep from one another. I was talking to a guy uh, at the last service, and his brother was an alcoholic, and he didn't know for years. And he said what he, he had Monday friends and Tuesday friends and Wednesday friends and Thursday friends, so his Tuesday friends just thought he got drunk on Monday. And his Wednesday friends just thought he got drunk on Tuesday. And his Thursday friends just thought he got drunk on Wednesday. They didn't realize he was getting drunk every night until there was some bleed among those people. And that's how some of us are. I've got a set of friends for this and a set of friends for this and a set of friends for this and a set of friends for this, and there's no bleed across. I'm one guy, but nobody fully knows me. Everybody gets just a slice of who I am. That's isolation. We need friends to protect us. You can't watch your own back, or if you do, you're going to run into the telephone pole in front of you. 
You can't look forward and back at the same time. You need somebody to watch your back, someone who loves you enough to say, listen, man, you're blowing it here. Or loves you enough to say, well, let's try this. I see this in your life. That's a real friend who doesn't even wait for you to bring it up, so who knows you well enough to say, listen, this, I can tell. We all need those kind of folk. You know that. It's what's written on the box for best instructions, relationship, Genesis 1 and 2. You see in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, says we need one another. If that's the case, then how come so many of us live isolated lives? There was a study, the American Sociological Review in 2006. They interviewed, I don't know how many Americans, and their distillation of that. Most Americans have two friends. 25% have zero. And that number's doubled in the last 20 years. I'm not talking about Facebook friends or the number of people who follow you on Twitter. I'm talking about people who know you. That stuff is fine for what it is. Y'all remember that old Brad Paisley song, So Much Cooler Online? That's the problem with online. I can be, it's easy enough for me to lie to you when you're looking me in the eye, much less when I'm sitting behind a keyboard. You don't have any idea. I can be whoever I want and pretend in so many ways. We need people who are in our lives, who know what's going on with us. And always it's going to require risk on our part. There's, it's never natural to let somebody in into a dark place in your heart. It's never natural to let somebody, these areas that we isolate, the reason we tend to isolate them is because we don't like what's happening there. And it just creates this cycle. I'm ashamed of this, and then I fall in that area, and then I don't want to tell you, because I'm ashamed of it, so I'll fall in that area, so I don't want to tell you, so I'm ashamed. That's how it works. And the only way to break the cycle is to open the door and let somebody in. And it never is comfortable. It never fits. It doesn't work well in between dinner and dessert or any. You just have to say it at some point. Trust somebody enough to let them in. So how come we don't do that? Real quick, Genesis 3. You know all this stuff, too. So Adam and Eve, they're set up, everything is great. Then at some point in time, they eat from a tree they're not supposed to eat from. And this is what happens starting in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We're looking for transparency and vulnerability. What we get most of the time is self-consciousness and shame. There's nothing wrong with being ashamed for doing the wrong thing. That's biblical, 100%. It's good to blush when you sin. But for most of us, we're not ashamed of what we have done. We're ashamed of who we are. And that's a completely different scenario, and it's bad. Adam and Eve recognize, if you read the end of chapter 2, it says they're naked and they felt no shame. But then suddenly they realize, well, we're different from each other. You don't look like me, and I don't look like you, and they become conscious of their differences. And the first thing they do is start covering them up. Cover up my maleness and my femaleness. They're ashamed of who they are. You can't be transparent if you're ashamed. You're going to put on a mask, put on some clothes so nobody can see what's really going on. Next verse. And the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they heard from the Lord God, no, excuse me, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? That's the second thing. We don't have time to talk about it today. This is the most significant, ultimately, alienation from God. That sin separated Adam and Eve from God. And I'll just say this. I don't have time to unpack it. You cannot, it's impossible to have life-giving relationships with other people 
if you're alienated from God. If you look across cultures and across time, there's, sev- there's several things that everybody has always needed, and two of those are acceptance. Where do I fit? Insecurity. Who's going to take care of me? That's a need in the heart of every man and woman who's ever been born in the history of the world. And God is the only one who can meet those needs unconditionally and eternally. And if they're not being met from him, I'm going to look for y'all to try to meet them for me. And you're not up to the task because you're not him. Even if there's some way for you to accept me unconditionally, which is a huge stretch, you can't accept me eternally because you're going to die. And then what am I supposed to do? When it comes to one another, it's almost always conditional. And even in the cases when it's not conditional, it is always temporary. Only God can provide unconditionally and eternally the acceptance and the security that we need. If you're missing that component in your life, it can be very difficult for you to maintain deep life-giving relationships because you're always going to be looking for them to do something for you that they just can't do. Not because they don't love you, but because they're not God. They can't stand up under the weight of the, of the need that you're going to have or that I'm going to have. That's true of all of us, no matter how needy we feel. We've got to move. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That's the next thing, fear. Think about the relationships that you don't have. How many of those relationships that you don't have or, or the relationships that you have that are shallow are based on the fact that you're just you're afraid if they fill in the blank? That's fear. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Self-protection, that undercuts all relationships. And that's where a lot of us live. I don't want you to see what's going on with me. And if you do see what's going on with me, I'm absolutely going to justify it. I'm going to spin it. I'm going to make it sound spiritual. I'm going to blame it on my mom. I'm going to do something so you, to protect myself from you and from any insight that you're going to give me. That's what we do. We shift, we blame, we lie. We do all that kind of stuff. Justify, rationalize. That undercuts authentic relationships. It's not just that I won't let you see into me because I'm self-conscious and I'm ashamed. I'm absolutely not going to let you speak into me because I've got to protect myself from that. I don't want you to know that I'm struggling. What would you think? Those type of things, you get that. So how do we move ahead? We're created for relationships. We're created in the image of a relational God. There's practical benefits from relationships. You see that. You know that. But we have this, we live in this fallen world. How do we hold those things together? How do we move ahead saying, I wanna, I'm going to choose relationship over isolation. I'm going to choose community over being alone. And the only thing I know to do is to do it. You make a choice. It's interesting to me when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and didn't miss a beat. The second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What are the two easiest things in the world to neglect? For me, my relationship with God and my relationship with others. I never miss a day of work. That's not in the top two. I'm not late with my taxes. That's not in the top two. Loving him and loving others. Those are the easiest things in my life and maybe in yours to neglect. It takes intentionality. Us saying, you know what, I'm going to put something into this. I'm going to carve time in my day for relationships. Easy to cut. 
I'm going to choose to open myself up and let people in, recognizing they might burn you. Absolutely. Maybe you can say Jesus was right 11 out of 12 times. He got burned on one of his too. It's going to happen. But that fear is no reason not to let somebody in. I'm going to pursue these. I'm not going to wait till the right time to share. I'm going to lead with vulnerability and transparency. I'm not going to wait for you to go first. I'm going to go first. I'm going to invite you into my life. One of the best things about the Lord is he's sovereign. And so if he says, this is what you need, he makes it happen for us. And he does the same thing with relationships. I tell people all the time, pray for friends. It doesn't mean that you're weird if you pray for friends, that you can't get them on your own. It's not for the unpopular kid. It's for all of us. Ask God, who do I need to be friends with? If you have children, absolutely pray for your children's friends. They're going to influence them more than you are. 12, 13, 14, you know how that's going to be. Same thing for us. That's what we did. There's nothing wrong with that. So begin to ask the Lord for friends. When he brings people into your life, make a choice to open up. Be transparent and vulnerable. And don't think about it the other way, too. We don't just want to be receivers of this. We want to be givers. So when you're in a relationship with somebody, think of this as a divine gift from the Lord for me to be in a relationship with you. And just like I'm looking, I want to hear God through you for me, I want you to hear God for yourself from me. I want to be a channel of his grace to you. We gotta, i got to pray, and then we'll see what's next. Let's pray. God, with all of that kind of rushed, my prayer is for each of us that we would find these deep, life-giving relationships, the people that you have for us. And maybe they're already in our life, and we just need to increase our level of intentionality, and that can be scary to go from talking about the sports and weather and kids to suddenly talking about real things. That, that can be a hard shift. But for some of us, that's what we need to do. And for others, it's there, we, don't, we don't know the people. And it's not for lack of trying. We just haven't clicked kind of that mystical word. We don't have chemistry yet. And my prayer, God, is through these small groups that people would bump into each other and form relationships. God, if it's not here, then please let it be somewhere that everyone in this room would be able to say, these are my people. These are the guys who are walking through life with me. If I fall down, I know who's going to help me up. When I'm cold, I know who's going to keep me warm, and I know who's got my back. Our culture destroys relationships, and for us to protect and nurture them, it requires courage on our part. And I pray you would give us that courage and that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is what we're going to do. If you're leading a small group, come, come up here. I need Sunday.